Welcome to our Aaron Fox podcast on national security and China technology issues. My name is Dave Hankey, and I'm a national security partner in our Washington, D.C. office. And this is hopefully the first in a series of national security podcasts that we're going to be doing. I'm going to let my colleague Marwa introduce herself. I'm Marwa Hassan. I'm a partner in the National Security Group as well, specializing in international trade, and I'm in Aaron Fox's Boston and LA offices. Marwa, there is a panoply of rules in this area and policies that overlap and intersect, and it's getting pretty tricky these days. And uh, the common thread running through all this really is national security. There's really three areas where the national security impacts are on China. And the first that we're going to talk about is U.S. government actions against foreign companies. Next, we'll we'll discuss U.S. government actions that impact both U.S. and non-U.S. companies. And lastly, we'll discuss actions that primarily impact U.S. companies as well as non-U.S. companies dealing with U.S. export control laws. Dave, let's kick this off with your favorite topic. What's going on with CFIUS and what does it have to do with China? Yeah, so CFIUS, of course, is the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. And uh, in a nutshell, this is the U.S. government's interagency mechanism for screening inbound foreign investments for national security risks. And uh, two years ago, Congress uh, enacted a modernization of the CFIUS process. This bill was called the Foreign Investment Risk Review Modernization Act, and it was really laser-focused on China if you review the legislative history. There were sort of three key takeaways or three key objectives that uh, Congress sought to achieve. One of those was to expand the jurisdiction of CFIUS. One was to modernize the processes of CFIUS to make them more relevant and more efficient. And then thirdly, really to boost the resources of CFIUS to tackle this, uh, these new challenges and address these new types of reviews. But uh, as cool as CFIUS is, Marwa, the um, U.S. government has done a lot more than just that. There have been numerous steps and measures that have been taken to address the uh, growing national security concerns regarding China. Yeah, there really has. And one of the biggest pieces of this is the Information Communication Technologies and Services Supply Chain Executive Order. It's a national security import control, which historically we've only had import controls related to certain military items and things controlled by ATF. There's a new set of regulations that are not final yet. It's unclear how this supply chain EO is going to work, but we do expect the, the rules to be finalized very soon. Dave, can you give us a summary of the ICTS rules? Yeah, maybe first just some quick background. So you mentioned the uh, executive order, of course, that goes back to May 15th of 2019. And this we call the ICTS supply chain EO for shorthand. But what happened was the, the president declared a national emergency pertaining to the creation and exploitation of vulnerabilities in ICTS. And what he did was he laid out some potential restrictions on activities in the U.S. These would be things like acquisition of um, certain equipment, uh, importation, installation, or use of that ICTS, uh, those ICTS products that are designed or made uh, by companies owned or controlled or subject to the jurisdiction or direction of a foreign adversary. And that's a mouthful, but um, but that's what it does. Okay, what's a foreign adversary? Foreign adversary is a term that they created in the executive order and they attempted to define it in the proposed rule that came out last November, but 
but really nobody knows uh, specifically who is going to be on this sort of list of foreign adversaries. Um, so we'll stay tuned for that. That proposed rule came out, I mentioned in November. Uh, some of the things that we see in that rule are a, um, the Commerce Department being authorized to design or negotiate measures to address these threats. And what that means is that commerce can initiate upfront reviews, um, kind of like the way CFIUS reviews foreign investments inbound into the U.S., uh, to evaluate whether these transactions pose unacceptable risks to the U.S. And the rule was really attacked by industry when it came out in, in a proposed form uh, because, of its, because of its vagueness and because of its lack of uh, certainty and specificity and, and, I guess, really predictability. So um, we'll see what they do in the final rule, but, um, but that'll be important to, uh, to watch. And, of course, we've talked a lot about Chinese uh, ICTS products and services here, but I think it's fair to assume that, um, that this rule is going to be designed to also cover things like software from Russia and products from other countries, too. So, um, by the way, on August 6th, just recently, there were a couple of interesting uh, executive orders that came out kind of piggybacking on this ICTS supply chain executive order. Do you want to talk a bit about that? Yeah. So, ICTS was used for the first time on August 6th. President Trump signed two executive orders related to Chinese social media apps and their parent companies, including TikTok, which has almost 200 million downloads. Based on national security reasons, the EOs essentially tell commerce to go identify specific transactions by any person or with respect to any property subject to the jurisdiction of the United States related to the apps and their parent companies. This language may sound really familiar. It usually shows up in the Office of Foreign Asset Control's blocking statutes. Um, this is essentially the first time that commerce gets to sanction uh, companies. And both of these EOs go into effect on September 21st. We'll have to wait and see what specific transactions commerce identifies. So we've talked about now the mobile apps and, and we've, we've covered a lot of issues on telecom. What, what else is going on with regards to telecom? Yeah, so on telecom, the executive order on ICTS supply chain was really just the tip of the iceberg in terms of more restrictive policies towards uh, Chinese telecom manufacturers. The um, U.S. Congress has also gotten in the game recently, um, and the bullseye has really been painted on companies like Huawei and ZTE, of course. Congress enacted the so-called rip-and-replace law, which is um, actually called the Secure Networks Act uh, earlier this year. And um, what that does is it mandates uh, telecom carriers, it requires that they literally remove, rip out um, existing um, telecommunications infrastructure that's not considered secure. And then it creates a new program where, um, where those companies can get reimbursed for the costs of replacing that gear with, with more secure gear. But uh, rip and replace is not the only thing. Um, there's also been a lot of activity by the Trump administration waged overseas against Huawei. Um, in particular in Europe. And um, what this has amounted to is the U.S. government asking U.S. allies to take similar measures really to ban Huawei or to restrict the use of uh, Huawei equipment uh, in their infrastructure over there. Uh, Marwa, I wanted to ask you a bit about the, um, the crossover back to export controls. Of course, um, Huawei here in the U.S. was put on the entity list not too long ago. We've heard about that um, a little bit over the past uh, couple of years, 
But uh, what does that mean, Huawei being put on the entity list? So Huawei was designated on the entity list, which is overseen by the Bureau of Industry and Security at the Department of Commerce. In addition to just Huawei, there's numerous of its affiliates and subsidiaries that are also on the list, and additional Chinese companies have been added in the last couple of years. An entity list designation essentially cuts off non-U.S. companies from U.S. supply chains. And the designation, the impact of the designation is slightly different for each entity on the list. In the case of Huawei and its affiliates and subs, exports from the United States are no longer permitted without a license, including items that are EAR 99, meaning they're not controlled for export other than to sanctioned countries. These are really benign things that are not even dual use uh, technologies or commodities. In addition, re-exports of items subject to the EAR are also prohibited without a license and items that are produced outside of the U.S. that contain some U.S. content are also prohibited. There's also a change to the foreign direct product rule that was made recently as as it relates to the entity list. So what's that all about? So the foreign direct product rule essentially controls items that are produced uh, directly from U.S. technology. And the the recent change expanded licensing requirements for exports and re-exports to certain parties on the entity list, a.k.a. Chinese telecoms. Now that we understand the various restrictions related to China, what is the U.S. government doing to pursue solutions to these complex problems? Well, the, um, there are two, two areas of technology that I think you could really consider to be strategic technologies and that for that same reason are really um, key focus areas for the U.S. government in terms of policy. And one of those is semiconductors, but the one I want to talk about right now is, is 5G since we've talked a bit about telecom. Of course, uh, globally, Huawei has been pretty ascendant in the um, telecom marketplace in recent years. So going forward, Huawei equipment is really not going to be an option for uh, U.S. telecom carriers or carriers in, US, in, uh, in countries that are allies of the U.S. But the good news is that there are some alternatives that are in the works. And um, there's some key members of Congress and also the Trump administration is working on this. Um, there's great interest in broadening the telecom supply base beyond Huawei, ZTE, and uh, the Scandinavian uh, suppliers and and other suppliers in, in Asia. Really, the uh, this initiative is called Open Radio Access Networks. And what it means is um, they're pursuing open and interoperable solutions for 5G and future generations too. Uh, companies that in the past have not really played a role in um, traditional telecom infrastructure, maybe companies that have done just hardware and software, um, instead can now get into the game and get involved instead of just um, carriers having to buy from a single huge company and use their proprietary technology. So that's something to watch. Dave, is there any legislation supporting these initiatives? Yeah, there's a bill called the USA Telecom Act that is uh, making its way through Congress. It's part of the Senate version of the Defense Authorization Act and the House version of the Intelligence Authorization Act. And one of the key parts of this is to create a $750 million fund for uh, R&D spending really a grants program on uh, on this type of open radio access network technology. And this, I think you could consider to be a, an example of um, sort of the broader effort to reshore um, R&D and certain types of manufacturing, especially for, for strategic technologies like this. Um, 
And the Congress is, by the way, also doing the same thing in the semiconductor space where they're creating billions of dollars of incentives for uh, semiconductor companies to manufacture uh, domestically back on U.S. soil. So we're monitoring that too. So we've checked off the Department of Commerce, the executive branch, and Congress. Where does the Department of Defense sit on all this? So the Pentagon has not really been just a spectator. Um, They've been playing a role in this through the interagency process, but they've got a very specific mandate that goes back 20 years, actually. Um, I call it the DOD name and shame list, but it was uh, from a National Defense Authorization Act um, from the 90s. And, um, and this pertains to, quote, communist Chinese military companies, unquote, that are operating in the U.S. These are companies that are owned or controlled by the Chinese military and that are engaged in things like manufacturing, producing, exporting. And what this law does is it authorizes the president to take action against companies that are put on this, this DOD list. And it invokes his authority under the International Emergency Economic Powers Act called IEPA. And what that really means is that uh, departments like state or treasury could act to regulate or even prohibit um, certain commercial activity by these companies in the U.S. I want to point out that um, even though a lot of this sort of um, policy towards China has happened during the Trump administration, a lot of these things are really bipartisan. And this particular initiative, uh, as I mentioned, goes back to the Clinton administration. Um, Also, Senate Democratic leader Chuck Schumer has been a huge proponent of uh, sort of reviving this authority, um, which he, he sent some letters with uh, with some of his uh, Senate colleagues recently. So you might ask, uh, what does this sort of DOD list mean for, for U.S. companies? I think what we could assume is that, that there's some groundwork being laid here for future action against these companies. You alluded to the executive orders that we saw recently. There's, there's potentially more of these kinds of things coming. But I think in the near term, this is probably intended to to signal to U.S. companies and other other foreign companies to just stay away from these Chinese companies. The goal may be to chill activity uh, with these these specific companies. But um, you know, there's certainly some overlap here between this DoD list and export control policy. Some of these exact companies on this uh, 20 company list are also on the entity list, which you talked about a little bit ago. So I was going to ask you. Are the uh, DOD listed companies um, also considered, quote, military end users by the uh, by the Commerce Department? That's a really good question, Dave. Um, I initially was slightly perplexed by the overlap of the terminology between the DOD uh, name and shame list and uh, generally what military end users and military end use is in the export administration regulations. So. As you mentioned, there is some overlap um, between the, the, the name and shame list and the entity list, but ultimately the DOD list military uh, companies are not automatically military end users under the export administration regulations. In late April, uh, BIS amended the provisions related to the exports and re-exports to military end users and for military end uses. Uh, It expanded the definition of military end use and therefore military end user. Um, And now a broader broader range of entities are subject to these MEU rules. Previously for China, 
um, there was a case-by-case assessment of whether or not a license would be granted to military end uses. Um, Military end users in China are now also prohibited, and there is a policy of denial for license requests. Additionally, several ECCNs were added to the list of restricted exports to MEUs, including some pretty benign commodities. So this gets complicated in a hurry, obviously. Um, Maybe you could just talk us through a quick example to uh, help understand it. Sure. One example of the more benign commodities that have been added to this list are, for example, personal laptops. So if a U.S. company wanted to send a personal laptop to, say, a Chinese university, they would have to ensure that the Chinese university is not using the Chinese the laptop for a military end use as defined in the EAR. As you can imagine, especially in light of China's military civil fusion policy, it can be very difficult for U.S. exporters to figure out what the end use of exported items are, especially these very benign items where exporters don't usually uh, do a whole lot of diligence in terms of end use. So I want to pivot for a second and talk about emerging technologies, which um, has been a hot topic. So as part of the CFIUS reform debate back in 2018, Congress uh, required the Commerce Department to identify and control these so-called emerging technologies. And that goes back two years. So uh, what that means is Commerce has had a full two years to study this issue, figure it out. um, And they really haven't done much, which has been, I think, surprising to some. What can you tell us about the state of play there on these emerging technologies and this mandate? So there's been one um, technology that has been controlled under this emerging technology initiative, which is geospatial imaging AI. Perhaps more interesting in the context of China is a recent request for comments from BIS that are due in mid-September regarding items controlled for crime control and detection reasons. We anticipate a rule expanding controls on some of those items. Uh, The crime control restrictions in particular to China, um, which there's there's a policy of denial for licenses for the export of those types of items to China. Um, we're really started off because of Tiananmen Square. Uh, I think the the recent uptick of facial recognition technology used both in relation to Hong Kong protests and human rights violations in China has been one of the motivating factors for potentially these new controls on emerging technologies that, for example, involve biometrics. With regards to human rights violations, there's growing scrutiny with regards to uh, mainland China, particularly the Uyghurs. OFAC has already sanctioned one Chinese government entity and some officials, and it's possible that we're going to see additional export controls, particularly in the crime control area. So while we're talking about export controls, I wanted to ask you about um, what's been done regarding Hong Kong. Of course, uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo just recently decertified Hong Kong under the 2019 Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act. He decertified Hong Kong as not sufficiently autonomous from China, which was interesting. Are there any particular export control implications that we need to watch there? Oh, yeah. This is a really hot topic in export controls. Um, 
if you can actually say that any topic is hot in export controls. But previously, Hong Kong received preferential treatment with regards to export controls. Uh, as a result of um, the declaration and that Hong Kong is no longer sufficiently autonomous from mainland China, uh, there is no more preferential treatment with regards to export controls to Hong Kong. The U.S. Department of State and Treasury, as a result of the Hong Kong Autonomy Act, are required to sanction foreign persons that have or are contributing to the failure of the government of China to meet its obligations regarding Hong Kong's autonomy. As a matter of fact, about half an hour before we started recording this podcast, Treasury issued sanctions related to Hong Kong. Uh, we'll follow up with, on, with an alert on this in a couple of days. In addition to, to sanctions, um, there have been changes to the Export Administration Regulations and the International Traffic and Arms Regulations, the ITAR. In early June, BIS suspended license exceptions that could be used to Hong Kong. Um, under both the ITAR and the EAR, Hong Kong is now treated like mainland China, meaning under the ITAR, it's a prescribed country, a 126.1 country, Essentially, there is a policy of denial and uh, for license applications related to China. So the ultimate takeaways from all these new policies and rules related to China is that it is just a lot trickier to do business with Chinese companies than it was even a year ago. Yeah, it's easy to see why with really this this whole web of uh, of new rules and policies that did not exist even just as recently as as three four years ago. So um, it would really behoove companies to to seek legal advice in these areas to make sure that they um, stay on the right side of the rules. And of course, we're here for that exact purpose, right, Marwa? Yes, Dave. If you are interested in more information about the topics that we've discussed today, you can visit errantfox.com and look for the National Security Industry Group, where all of our alerts are consolidated into one happy space. Thanks for doing this, Marwa. This was fun. Appreciate it. As always, Dave.